Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Lori Adams, is president of the NGO Women for Women International, which works with women survivors of war. She has had a long career in the NGO sector and as an activist, including many years with Oxfam in various parts of Africa and the NGO ActionAid International. Lori began her career as an activist, initially inspired by the anti-apartheid movement, and we have a really thoughtful conversation about both the role of activism in international affairs and also just how one becomes a professional activist. This is a great conversation. I think you'll like it. And I must say, I always love learning after the fact that the person with whom I'm having a conversation is actually a listener to the show. That's happened a few times now. I love it. Thank you, Lori, for being a listener and a guest. So if you've not done so already, check out our offerings for premium subscribers. I've listed all the bonus episodes that I've already published and the ones upcoming in the description field of this episode, and you can follow the link on your phone to unlock those and other rewards. Thank you to those of you who are already premium members, and if you want to become one, it's a few clicks away. Thank you. Oh, I've also heard from a number of listeners who have told me that one of the big reasons that they keep coming back to the show is that it makes them feel connected to the kinds of conversations and debates that are happening inside the foreign policy community, even if they're listening somewhere far from the foreign policy community, they find that the podcast helps them connect to the debates inside the bubble. So I'm going to keep thinking of ways to enhance that experience for you. But in the meantime, I've put together a list of about a few dozen Twitter accounts that I think would do a good job of exposing you to the debates as they are happening in real time. If you want that list, just send me an email and I'll mail it back to you. Use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to send me an email and I will send you the list of Twitter accounts. All right, here is Lori Adams. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Women for Women has an exciting origin story, and, you know, one that inspires me and inspires a lot of us. It was founded by Zainab Salbi when she was in her early 20s, and she herself was a survivor of rape and violence. She has a book that many people have read or they've seen her on her TED Talk um, or on Oprah, and she describes quite beautifully and vividly and in an inspiring way. Um, what it was like to grow up under Saddam Hussein's Iraq, what it was like to have to um, flee into an abusive marriage, and how that inspired her to want to do something about um, supporting survivors of war globally. She went to the Bosnian rape camps and felt 
that she absolutely had to do something. And the program started from there. And what I find fascinating about it, having entered this work more as a development professional and sort of studied what are the development interventions that work, and you know, and knowing that participation of the people that we work, uh, work to serve is critically important, um, what's fascinating about Women for Women is that it literally started 25 years ago as cash transfers. That women in the U.S. sending cash to survivors of the rape camps because, you know, when women are raped, um, they're often stigmatized and they're not even accepted back into their own families. And so they're left often completely alone and with no means of rebuilding their lives. And so it was virtually like cash. And then the women said, well, well actually... I just, actually, I just like stop, stop you there because... Uh, cash transfers now are like all the rage or, or all the rave. Uh, they're in vogue. You know, exactly. people are are discussing how you know just giving cold hard cash to people in need is the wave of the future. But you say you're doing this like 25 years ago. 25 years ago, and when I was at I was managing Oxfam's programs in West Africa in 2000, and we were piloting cash transfers in in uh, in West Africa, and I didn't know. And I'm I'm sure there are lots of organizations but doing this. But for me, what's fascinating is it started with cash transfers and then the other elements of the program are layered on until what we have now is a sort of, it's an enhanced pro-poor graduation model is effectively what we deliver, but built from the bottom up, cash transfers first, and then adding in human rights training and the need to work with the women on psychosocial trauma. One of my favorite quotes is from a, a woman called Mariam, who's a Syrian refugee in Northern Iraq who, who went through our program. And she said, the program gave me back the courage that the war had destroyed, gave me back the confidence and courage that the war had destroyed. And what I love about that is it's, it's you know, this is something that is inherent in many people. Traumatic experiences can take it away from you. And recognizing that cash alone, and I'm a believer in cash transfers, I think they can be very powerful, but cash alone in that environment was not enough. And the women said, you know what? We also need support to rebuild our lives. We need to be in networks of support. So the being put into groups of women, we, we organize women into groups of 25 um, for both human rights training and vocational training and business support training, but also for earnings and savings groups and also for cooperatives and micro enterprises. So that combination of cash, solidarity, training, ongoing mentoring and coaching that package has proved extremely powerful so, and um so it built from bosnia and well, well can i ask you can i ask you on uh, yep. about bosnia so so you said that the origins of women for women were in the bosnian rape camps what like what were the bosnian rape camps for people who are unfamiliar but i mean the bosnian rape camps were you know there's a, a genocide happening um and in serbia and um one of the ways that groups that are trying to eradicate and punish a whole other group do that, unfortunately, is through literally trying to wipe out the ethnic heritage by raping women. And so rape of women happens in, in wars sometimes because, as a deliberate strategy in order to shame populations, to destroy the social cohesion, and to destroy the very ethnicity. And so um, the Bosnian rape camps were one element of that. And we saw it again in Rwanda in, in 1994, a half a million women raped. And, and we see it in Congo, a deliberate strategy of going out and targeting women in the communities that uh, the genocidaires are trying to destroy. And there's been some fascinating research done 
on some of the militia in Congo in which the interviews with the men and they talk about how they're trained um, to go out and deliberately rape women as a means of destroying the fabric of those communities and those families as a means of winning the war. And so how does your organization then work with women in, in post-conflict situations? Um, so we work with women um, by in this mix that I described, which is, first of all, we go into communities and we identify the communities that are the absolute most marginalized. Part of our mission is to work with the most vulnerable, the most excluded. And so we first of all find the communities that are most excluded and then and we do that with data and, and research. And then after that, within that, we consult with the community to find out that the women who are most excluded. And those exclusion factors are along the lines of violence, isolation, extreme poverty, having experienced conflict and discrimination. And so you find that who we end up working with is not only the ultra poor, but the destitute poor. Um, women who earn on average less than 30 cents a day um, and have almost no active means of income. So we then organize these women into groups of 25 and they go through a year long course of intense, intensive education and training it includes health and wellness education, training and rights and decision making, vocational training, basic business skills, the $10 monthly stipend, um, and then savings and lendings groups. At the end of the year, we continue to engage with the women less intensively, um, often sometimes informally, sometimes more formally, depending on the funding available to us, to support them to continue on in, in co-ops and micro-enterprises. And um, over the years, um, that's our core program. That's about 60 to 80% of our budget. We have a number of complementary programs, and those include men's engagement. There's 15,000 men who've gone through our rights training programs to support the women in our program. We also have advanced business skills and cooperative support. Um, and then we also do some community outreach and advocacy, depending on, you know, the different uh, different countries and um, different interests and also funding availability. Our core program, that training program that almost half a million women have gone through, um, including the cash transfer and the asset transfer, is funded primarily by Unrestricted. We have a sponsorship program. Mm -hmm. So women in the U.S., in the U.K., in fact, in over 100 countries, sign up and pay $35 a month. I was introduced to Women for Women actually by being a sponsor. Oh, okay. um, yeah. And um, I, I worked for ActionAid for many, many years, which is a child sponsorship organization. And when I was at ActionAid, I was like, well, why is it always children? Why not women? Well, and I uh, found Women for Women. <laughs> uh, on, on, the, like, uh, on along those lines, I mean, it, it seems um, like logical that international aid agencies in the wake of, of conflict would first seek to support the needs of, of men in that men are the ones who, who fight war. So you want to get like military aged younger men back to work and so they're not they're not fighting i think the economist paul collier has done some work on on that end how there is this kind of correlation between uh getting young men back to work and them not picking up arms in instead but uh, one wonders if all that focus on men might uh, have been to the exclusion of the longer term kind of development gains that can be achieved by investing in in women in particular Look, I mean, there's so much in that. I mean, first of all, I don't think um, it's really unfortunate if we have to be either or. Um, it's very important to work with 
soldiers to rehabilitate them and to ensure they have employment. Absolutely important. But it is, as you've perhaps were mentioning, often the women and the critical importance of women in rebuilding societies that's overlooked. It's an invisible work that throughout the ages has been assumed. You know, Margaret Mead um, talked about it as just being, it's the sort of, it's in patriarchal societies, it's the nature of it. It's women who knit societies together. It's women who hold them together. It's women who hold the culture together while the men are at war and who heal when they come back. So that's, first of all, a a, a patriarchal reality that may or may not be entirely true. However, it is what is assumed and invisible and not really valued. In modern wars, you know, which as you know, um, have changed enormously, it's not that you go off to battle somewhere else. The wars are often right there in your homes. Um, they're often in, in, in countries and they affect women as much as men and women are um, experiencing the violence of the conflict. So, this assumption in the first place that women will invisibly reheal when they themselves have been deeply traumatized is highly, I mean, if it was ever true and worked, it is now totally problematized. So you have to, the, the wounds of war go so far beyond infrastructure and they go deep into our societies. And one of the reasons it's so important that Women for Women works for 20 years in, you know, after the genocide in Rwanda, that we continue to invest in Kosovo and Bosnia, on the, although in a different way, is that that healing of the psychosocial traumatic stress, not just to the individual, but to the culture and the community, um, it, it, it's deep work um, that has to be done. I spent 15 years in South Africa, um, started as an anti-apartheid activist, and um, as you know, one of the most progressive constitutions in the world. But the 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 violence that continues to just traumatize people in South Africa out of that history of apartheid is, is just terrible and so, so difficult to overcome. Uh, you saw, you know, I saw um, so many, I was an LGBTI activist as well, am an LGBTI activist as well, and to see so many of my lesbian sisters murdered in a, in a country with a constitution that guarantees uh, gay and lesbian rights, it shows the depth of work that needs to be done on social norms. You can't just pass a law and you can't just get people back to work. You have to do the deep work of rebuilding social cohesion, people's confidence, people's ability to love, their ability to express themselves without violence. Um, you have to take away violence as a norm. And that requires deep, deep organizing work. So I'd love to learn the roots of, of your engagement on these issues and, and how you came to these issues and, and what animates you and, and what fires you up. So where are you from? I thought you were British, by the way. I didn't, I've never spoken to you before. I, I, saw, I saw your resume. I was like, oh, Oxfam. She went to some British grad school. And then you're... There we go. No, it's it's um, I, I um, you know I have the American accent, but it's a little bit of a mystery that I do because I've spent forty years um, not in the U.S. and only one year back now, uh -huh. and so um, so I am perhaps you know I claim internationalist, although the accent does make everyone uh, <laughs> not not believe that. I was born in Korea. I grew up in Italy and Germany. My parents worked for the U.S. government. Um, and um, what did they I, do? Were, were they uh, State Department people, Foreign Service officers? 
No, they were this in-between where they worked for the military but were not in the military. So my dad was one of these rebels without a cause, perhaps. He was uh, conscripted to go to Vietnam, didn't want to fight in Vietnam, so agreed to go to Korea instead, where there wasn't an active war at the time, and did his soldier stint and then um, loved Korea and stayed for 10 years working for the government as a civilian. Well, how do you get to choose where you were drafted to at that time? Well, that was apparently, I mean, I only actually found this out recently because I couldn't quite square, like, why did my dad join the military? It was just didn't make sense, given who he was. And it turned out that, you know, he had to, it, apparently it was the deal. You could either take your two years and go where you were told, or you could agree to stay longer and have some choice. Hmm. And that was the case of us growing up all along. If you were in the military, you got rotated, you know, usually every two to three years and without any choice. But as a civilian... And my parents had a had a degree of a degree of choice, and we didn't live on the bases. Uh, we lived with it was actually called. Can you believe it or not? With the natives, so I lived with the <laughs> those natives. wild native uh, Italians and, and yes, Koreans. Yeah. Yes, and those wild native Germans <laughs> and those wild native yeah. Koreans. So, um, so I find being in the U.S. right now. It's my first year in the U.S. Uh, as a uh, in many since 1989. I find this the more anthropological experience than all yeah. the years I spent in Senegal or Kenya or South Africa or yeah, all well, the places I've lived since. Well, you came in a, a sociologically interesting year, I suppose. Um, yes, but I didn't think it would have been any year. And, you know, I, I have. I've also worked for primarily, um, you know, Action Aid was founded in um, London. However, by the time I joined it, in fact, I joined it to help set up the International Secretariat in Johannesburg and, you know, led from the Global South with leadership from the Global South, Action Aid UK um, no longer leading the Federation Confederation, but you know, um, genuinely led um, perhaps one of the truly international NGOs, and so, um, but still informed by its past of having um, systems and structures originally founded in the UK. So where and where so, did your 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 activism come from then? Like in 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 all this time, like growing up in in a multicultural, multinational kind of environments. Well, I think, you know, the, the, the sort of more foreign policy side of it probably came from, you know, being international and seeing the incredible importance that the U.S. has, the, the, the very long shadow that we cast around the world. Um, and we have a possibility to be a model for peace and human rights, which is what we speak about. Um, and better for worse, many look to us as a, as a standard to aspire to. And I, I met a lot of people growing up who really uh, did not like the U.S. and the U.S. influence, and I met a lot of people who really um, did. And but it was it was interesting that all over the world, this nation on the other side of the planet did have such an important. Um, you know, people reacted to it quite strongly, either positively or negatively. So I think, um, you know, where the U.S. is a positive beacon for people, it's extremely damaging to people's hopes and aspirations when we betray those values that the U.S. holds up as the guide of its policy. Um, and then, um, uh, and for those who don't uh, think that the U.S. is a positive mo model, when we don't meet those ideals or vision either, you know, it's uh, it's an opportunity for them to, you know. Well, when uh, well, can, can I can I ask like when did when did yeah. what you're describing that that realization become sort of first apparent to you um, that one the United States can be a beacon of hope, but also it can be sort of profoundly disappointing as well, and is sort of your job as as a citizen of the world, as, as you said, to try to sort of do right? Um, well, 
I think, you know, maybe one of the, the fundamental moments was when the Red Brigades bombed the military, U.S. military base when, that we were on um, in Italy. Um, I wasn't directly affected by it. They actually um, attacked Verona and we were in Vicenza. But, what, you know, what, was you that, of, what was that incident? Because I don't think everyone who's listening would be familiar. I'm, I'm oh, certainly it, not like intimately familiar with it. No, no. And, it, you know, the, the importance of it is just, you know, is is a um, a group of radicals in Italy who didn't feel that the U.S. should be, as they saw it, occupying their countries with these military bases. So, um um, and so that choice of taking a violent means of action against a government that you feel is not um, supporting you, you know, that's a that's one of the choices that that people make. Through. Do you do you protest violently or nonviolently? Um, do you feel like you have any control over destiny? Um, how do you choose to to bring about change in the world? But I think you know the other thing I was going to talk about. The other really important um, force in my life, perhaps, was that my uh, parents adopted my sister, who is uh, Korean and African American, and so I also grew up in a family in which I I saw I was a, a I saw racism. I guess I can't call it firsthand, but second, you know, very directly. I mm-hmm. saw how my sister was treated. And so um, racism was always something that was very apparent to me. And I was just mm-hmm. outraged. And when I heard about apartheid, which I didn't hear about until I got to college, actually, I was just appalled. I was like, this has to end. It has to end now. And I'm going to do everything I can until it ends. And so, you know, from then on, I was at Dartmouth and it, it was – divestment movement it was you know quit the ski team and do full-time activism I, mean, I had chosen it based on the ski team but i spent mm-hmm. all my time you know building shanties and sitting in them and and organizing the community and doing you know takeovers of the university and race racins we you know we had a we 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 had um you know the whole university shut down to talk about race for a day um and women's rights activism as well i mean dartmouth in those days had extremely terrible uh, problem with sexual harassment and rape on campus. Um, it had only been 15 years since women joined the campus and there were very few women professors. There were no tenured professors. It was a very, very patriarchal place at the time. And so a lot of, uh, you know, just sort of really shocked into saying, this isn't, this, you know, this isn't right. Um, this racism has to end. This sexism has to end. This classism has to end. And, um, you know, that youthful energy of, and I can, you know, I'll, I'll, and we'll all end it all in the next five years and then we can go back to <laughs> something else. And of course, it's a longer term challenge than that. Uh, but was it, um, was it the, the apartheid movement that sort of internationalized these issues for you? I mean, it seems to be, uh, for a lot of, of activists of, of your generation in particular, like the key defining issue that that launched their careers or at least um made them aware one of the the power of, of activism in, in changing world events as well no absolutely and one of the one of the important things about the anti-apartheid movement as a place to learn is that it really touched all issues right so because we were arguing for disinvestment we had to understand the economy and the financial arguments. Um, and because it had to do with international policy, we had to understand something about foreign policy. And then it was also about human rights, and it was also about race, and it was also about gender. So, you know, Cold Central War, Americans... politics, and, and it, all that All stuff, of those yeah. things, right? So, you know, if you're doing Central American solidarity work, perhaps that was more directly about U.S. foreign policy. But in South Africa, with the divestment movement, we really had to, um, you know, negotiate. We, you know, I was, you know, we were all in our 20s, and we were negotiating with the 
board of trustees of Dartmouth who included, you know, very senior people in IBM, DuPont, etc. And there we are negotiating with those leaders on why they should take this financial decision. So it was a it, it was a a cause that was, you know, morally clear for many people, um, but that was across many different issues. And so you began to make linkages across issues and required a lot of different organizing skills. So um, it was it was um, it was an important movement. And um, you know, I've only left South Africa two years ago. I ended up staying for quite a long time. Um, and uh, were you in South Africa during like the nineties, the early nineties, when when Mandela was released? Yes, I moved to South Africa when Mandela was released. I was sent by two U.S. anti-apartheid organizations at the time to represent them, to be their first field representative to say, you know, what should we, how do you rebuild? How do you post-struggle? How do you show solidarity? Um, so um, it was Global Exchange and something called the U.S. South Africa Sister Community Project. And, um, you know, I ended up staying. I, I fell in love with the country. And um, it was the incredible movement uh, inside South Africa was such um, thought and care, and um, well, can, yeah, it was a. Can I ask? Like, at what point did you realize that um, activism, particularly on on global issues, could actually be like a, a profession as opposed to uh, like a, a hobby or a passion uh, that you that you had that, but it's something that you could actually like dedicate your life and, and your <laughs> professional career to. <laughs> well, in one way, it was when I had kids and had to figure out how to support them yeah. because many, many years, um, it was just, you know, what I did and you just earned enough to get by. And I, I never thought of it as a career. You know, kids will do that I to you. I know a, firsthand. As a, God, you know yeah. that too, right? It was support just like, podcast. a yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly. Um, and by the way, Dawn's Digest is a lifesaver. I absolutely oh, adore thank it. You. Thank absolutely you. Thank you. Absolutely fantastic. Oh, You've made, you know, as, as people have said, you save hours and hours and hours of all of our days. Um, it's fantastic. That's too kind. Um, thank you. Um, but, um, but I think, you know, it's always a struggle as well, right? Um, I think one of the things you have to be really, really careful about um, is the professionalization of activism and movements. Um, and, you know, that line between career industry and activism, because I'm a deep believer in the power of people mobilizing. And if the only way people mobilize is if it's their career, we're never going to bring about change. So, you know, one of the things that I, you know, coming to Women for Women feels like home to me because it brings together these two strands of my life. You know, the first half of my adult life was very much sort of activist, um, you know, barely paid, often volunteer, get out there and do whatever it takes with whatever skills you teach yourself. I taught myself DBase 4, you know, I'm hardly a programmer, um, you know, how to do newsletters, how to do desktop publish, anything that was required, you just learned how to do it and you did it. Um, and, the, and then, you know, you know, to, you know, to be managing regions for Oxfam, you know, you have to be a professional, you have to know how to budget and manage and human resources and security management. And if you, know, you can't make that stuff up, you have to be trained, you have to be a professional. And so I've lived both and, and, and I know the necessity of both. And Women for Women is this awesome combination of a grassroots movement in which women and men in the U.S. and around the world sister and sponsor women on the other side of the world. And there's a direct letter exchange and it's a movement of people who are saying, I am going to act today to change someone's life and I can make an immediate difference and I'm going to act. And it's not going to be because it's my career. It's going to be because 
I believe in a humane world, in a global society, and I'm going to act towards that. And on the other hand, it has this incredibly powerful, you know, quantified program that has the best M&E I've ever seen. And I was, you know, I was the head of M&E at ActionAid for eight years. So <laughs> not putting down ActionAid or myself, but, you know, here there's... And, and there's, that's, that's, that's uh, iDev speak for, for measurement and evaluation, we should say, right? Yes, yes. So here, every single woman that goes into the program does a survey that says, what is her income? What's her health indicators? What's her, you know, indicators across all the outcomes. And then it's at the end, and then it's a year after and two years after the intervention. So that's that's... You know, for for a small organization, um, that's really quite rigorous. And the program, you know, it makes changes every single year in order to make it better. So it's this amazing combination, for, you know, of mm -hmm. small enough and grassroots enough to retain that you can join and make a difference right now so, with rigorous enough to say, yep, uh, we're doing two random control trials right now. We're running two random control trials and you're know, absolutely um, dedicated to proving that this mix of economic and social interventions together is what makes sustainable. So, so, so going back to to South Africa, your experience there, um, I I suppose like how did you sort of manage as a, a foreign white uh, liberal, I suppose, like working in a a previously very hostile environment, but a rapidly changing. Uh, environment. I mean, how how did you uh, approach your job? How did your your background, your your foreignness, I suppose, affect the kind of work that you were trying to do on the ground in South Africa? Well, I took different roles at different times, and in the nineties, uh, between ninety in the nineties, uh, non-racialism was extremely strong, and people's energy for change was and commitment was amazing, and it didn't it honestly didn't matter that much. It was like you're. In fact, I was begged to be, uh, you know, to take leadership roles, and it was me that was saying, you know, as a white foreigner, I just don't think that's appropriate. Um, so in those days, it was, you know, you're. It was the cause, you know, you're committed to this, you can add something, just come. By the time I left two years ago, that was no longer the case, and also I was in a very different role. When you go in as a, you know, virtually unpaid activist trying to help people, you are treated differently than when you're um, an expatriated manager of Oxfam's region. Um, and so, you know, partly the country had changed and partly my role had changed. But so what I did at, at Oxfam was I almost always took a backseat role. So um, I, if someone had to go speak, then, you know, we'd send our policy director rather than me. If, um, you know, so you, you just take the appropriate role. And the reason at ActionAid that I was heading up the monitoring and evaluation system was partly because, um, you know, as an organization led from the global south, a real recognition that if you're not from the countries with a deep, deep understanding of those countries, is it really appropriate for you to be the one that's leading change there? Mm -hmm. So, so taking more of a back office role. So, so earlier you talked about sort of the need to have, uh, you know, professional expertise as, as well. How did you gain that expertise? Like, and, and when did that kind of realization come for you? Um, well, I think, um, you know, one of the ways I did it was, you know, 
midway through my career, I did a, a, a master's degree in public policy by distance. I mean, that was fun. I was a single mom with <laughs> serious, serious two kids and a job doing it. But, you know, it's still, it's, you know, it's still, I still remember some of the, the things I did learn in terms of more statistical research, a better approach to IT. Um, also, organizations like ActionAid and Oxfam were very, very good at doing professional management training. I had absolutely excellent, you know, sort of people management training in both organizations. Um, I had great financial management training um, from two of my employers. So um, there's both the kind of, um, you know, both Oxfam and ActionAid invested very, very heavily in um, making sure that managers, as they grew into that role, had those had those skills. Um, the the more um, the stuff that was more learned on the side was um, uh, communication, IT stuff like that. And I think, you know, one of the things that we as NGOs are starting to realize, have to realize more, is that those are equally professional. Um, you know. Uh, we all think that because we're people, we know about people management. We all think that because we communicate, we're communicators. But actually, those are also uh, professions, um, and we need to understand and value people who've who studied throughout and 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 you know had decades of experience on that. So, uh, how did you, uh, I suppose, transition from working for those uh, two NGOs? working on, on apartheid issues to uh, Oxfam, which is, you know, one of the largest, not the largest international aid and advocacy organizations. Oh, hello. Well, I, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm just trying to, um, I'm trying to recall. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was in 2000. And I think actually with just quite a lot of curiosity and eagerness because Oxfam chose to send me to West Africa. And I had never been to West Africa. And so I landed in Senegal. I had to learn French. I didn't speak French at the time. I spoke Italian and Spanish, so it wasn't that difficult. But um, I had to, and I was just absolutely fascinated um, by Senegal, by the mix of Wolof and Islam and the influence of the French and the whole, you know, va how vastly different West Africa, well, Senegal is to South Africa, Southern Africa. And, um, you know, so compelled by the differences in the struggles. So there I was in West Africa responding primarily, you know, it was about, about half of Oxfam's work was emergency response. And this was during the Liberian War, the Sierra Leone War. Also, there was a huge drought in Mauritania. Um, while I was there, Cote d'Ivoire uh, fell into conflict. So um, there was just I, huge um, needs that were very different from the struggle for liberation in Southern Africa, for example. Um, and, and yet, um, and so I just, I just loved learning about it all. And Oxfam has a very um, professional humanitarian team. So they sent me on training to make sure that I had those skills, um, security training with Red R, um, immersion, um, shadowing under the then manager of, of, of the DRC program, which was enormous at the time. Um, so um, I guess I just went to it with gusto and sort of really enjoying um, learning all these different tools and opportunities to be able to try to end injustice. And one of the great things about Oxfam and ActionAid and WinForum and all the organizations that I've had the privilege to work with is that combination of 
um, a sort of humanitarian spirit and desire and reality of making a difference when people are in the most acute crisis, but also a much more longer term approach of, you know, you need to build a movement here. This is about justice. Um, so that combination for me is really. That's what quite- I've actually always found really interesting about Oxfam is that I, I they're not just like an, an NGO. They're uh, also an advocacy organization, you know, which, which I've always found to be like an interesting combination uh, oh, I did. I did to... hunger. Yeah, I did hunger. I I fast. I did a whole fast for peace for Oxfam when I was at uh, college. So mm. it was very interesting that you know years later I ended up um, working for a different branch of Oxfam. Yeah. So wonderful... how long how long were you there in in West in Senegal in, in West Africa for? I managed the West Africa region for Oxfam for four years, um, and then I moved to Kenya and managed Great Lakes. And I think that's where I really, you know, I I started off as an advocate, uh, more of an advocacy person. But I think, I you know, one of my responsibilities was leading the Great Lakes advocacy strategy for Oxfam. Great Lakes is, you know, Rwanda and Congo and um, Burundi. Uh, and that conflict is so complex and the idea that we're going to be able to change anything in any kind of immediate term through an advocacy strategy um you know it didn't it didn't turn out to be the case and so i became more um driven to do what i'm doing now with women for women which is how do you on the one hand work for that longer term change but you know in the meantime when women are getting brutalized and raped and their very insides are coming out of them frankly you know how do you stop that right now and so i i i really felt compelled that i want to respond to the horrors right now while also working for that longer term change that will prevent it. Was there like a, a moment or an experience that you can recall that crystallized that, that need to, to shift for you from focusing on long term advocacy to doing more immediate um, interventions in, in like the here and now? It was, it, I think it was, it was my, my third different organization going to the Congo. And I, and I, you know, I just want to stress, I really do believe the long-term structural change in the advocacy is critically important. But I think, you know, I think I was in the Congo, I was in um, Eastern Congo in Goma and I'd been there, you know, I'd managed DRC for Oxfam and I was back there for ActionAid. We were doing an assessment of, you know, could you do sponsorship in Congo and what kind of longer term work could we do in that situation? And I just remember being there like, you know, what else? And and at the time there was an alert that the lake, I don't know if you've ever been there, but you know, beautiful lake, it's just an absolutely gorgeous place. And yet there's this lake was putting off poisonous gases in a town that had been devastated by a volcano on a population that has had multiple different militia and, uh, you know, different government forces hurting them. It's just like, what else could happen to these poor people? It just felt like purgatory on earth. And I, you know, just, uh, and I, and I think when I, um, I was, the last job I had with Oxfam was I was their women's rights director and it was a fantastic job. I crossed, my job was to look at the strategy across all parts of the organization. Oxfam really wanted to put women's rights at the heart of everything it did. So fundraising, marketing, communications, advocacy, programming. And so I had the opportunity to not just manage programs and um, and look at uh, humanitarian and advocacy response, but also like how do you put women's rights at the heart of your marketing? 
right? And actually researching what does the word women's rights mean to the British public? Uh, how do they understand that? Well, what did you find you... out? That, can I digress for a second? Like, what, did, <laughs> what, how did, what did you learn about that? Well, all kinds of fascinating things. Like, for example, I don't you know if anyone's um, listening from the UK, but you know, Daily Mail readers ha had a more positive response to the term feminist than they did to the term women's rights, for example. Um, very interesting. Probably and, not the sun um, readers, though. <laughs> well, Daily Mail was the you know is the classic that people you know Daily Mail is is um, not trashier than the sun. Well, they you know classic. Um, the Daily Mail likes to you know do a pretty strong critique of aid and development at times, mm -hmm. and um, but you know the point was feminism was coming up the in latest wave of feminism, and you know Beyonce and you know lots of other younger stars sort of claiming this term. So there was a shift happening, but mm -hmm. there's you just have to be extremely you know all these terms come loaded with lots and lots and lots of meaning that people understand differently, and. Um, and the, you know, many of us who come out of a pure program quality or out of feminism, our words are very, very important to us. And we want to use this term, which means precisely this. But that, of course, isn't communication is what the person understands, not what you say. And so um, to understand that that's not what people were left with and to try to find ways. And, and what we found was that people really power, power did work. Power as a concept really worked. And also unpaid care, really, people really resonated with unpaid care. So they really understood and they could identify with, you know, how does a woman who's taking care of all of these different people in her lives also manage an income? And, and something has to be done about that. So interesting research that unpaid care, which, you know, 10 years ago was considered a wonky issue that was on the, you know, fringe of intellectual and women's rights issue. It's right central now, which is fantastic. Um, and, you know, again, Women for Women has got a whole segment in its training on the value of women's work and trying to train women on how to negotiate within their communities and families around redistributing some of that, um, that care responsibility. So, um, no, it was it was a fascinating fascinating opportunity to be able to work with Oxfam in the UK um, after having been in three different Africa regions to look at how do you make women's rights front and center. And it was when I was doing that um, that I came across Women for Women, which also has a UK office. And uh, Women for Women International in the UK convenes the Women Peace and Security Network now. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's how I got to know um, Women for Women more deeply. I'd known about their sponsorship and I'd sponsoring, but I got to know the team. And I said, you know, this holistic approach of bringing together um, economic and social over the long term, 20 years in a country, th three years in a community, um, intensive, um, same thing over eight countries, varied but similar. Um, it's, it's, it's real liberation from having uh, – it's – from having to pursue projects, you know, we're always trying to get away from projects and development, but the way funding is structured often leads you back to projects and um, a real joy to be able to work in an environment where you really can put together a holistic program. Uh, but, but it was that moment in, in Goma, uh, was it on Lake Kivu? Is that, is that where the lake, one of those lakes? Um, it was in Goma, it was on the lake. And yeah, I, I, that, that, I, mm -hmm. That moment of just saying, you know, I really want to be able to do something. I mean, when it was to do also with, um, and I, you know, and I want to be really clear. I still believe in this, but one of the things I had to do when I was working at ActionAid is a, a lot of people who 
came into ActionAid had come from more charitable de traditional development organizations in which there was service delivery. And ActionAid was all about, is all about building social movements for change and not about service delivery. And so, um, but you have staff who are used to service delivery and who get joy out of being able to serve instantly in the moment. So I was part of running a lot of workshops with a lot of staff to try to explain a rights-based approach and why, you know, ensuring that duty bearers are held accountable is the way that we're going to be able to have education for all ultimately. Building a school, short term, never going to be sustained. Getting the state to do it, that's the right way to do it. I believe in that. But in, you know, trying to talk to staff in Congo or South Sudan or, um, you know, places that really um, the prospects of having a, a state that is going to deliver on its duties and responsibilities in the person's, um, you know, in the child's childhood or in, you know, in the next 10 years, it's just deeply remote, um, you know, just made me want to also be able to well then there's another thing too and this didn't come when I was sitting in Goma but it came um, as we were talking about assessing the millennium development goals and moving on to the sustainable development goals um, you know we, the the international community has made a commitment to leave no one behind and we all know that those who are least likely to come out of extreme poverty um, are those who are in quote-unquote fragile states and yet I think that there are ways that we can overcome poverty and injustices and human rights violations in places like um, that Women for Women works in. And I think that being able to show on the ground practically a model that can work. Um, and it's like scalable too, right? I mean, that that's what's kind of yeah. interesting about, about Women for Women. It's, 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 the, yeah, yeah. it's like cash and, and personnel. That's basically what you need, right? And it's and it's another it can be another form of advocacy, right? It's a it's a it's a show by doing. And um, there are you know the whole international NGO sector, the whole international development sector is you know on the verge of being severely disrupted, is being disrupted, um, is radically transforming. And um, I think being able to um, have a model for look, this works with the data to show it can be another form of advocacy that contributes to. Um, yeah, as you say, um, adopting, you know, convincing others who have far more resources to 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 take as an approach that is deep, long term, systematic, and to be able to show it's worth the investment. Um, it's not a, you know, as a as an activist, you don't want to run away. It's worth the investment, isn't the terminology we often use? But you know what? It is. It is. The return on investment is huge, and being able to also speak that language sometimes and and show the actual results you get. Um, you invest this much into this woman's lives and the return for that woman, for her family, for the community, for the nation, for the world, to be able to make that case and show it um, is important. So is your job now in, in DC convincing potential funders or policymakers of, of that case? Um, well, the job has wonderful components. One of them is continuing to lead and manage across the countries and to expand our work into into new countries. We're um, 
currently trying to fundraise to expand our Syria response by opening up in Jordan. Our response is currently in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, and we'd like to also open up in Jordan. I had the privilege to go in October and 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 um, see the results of the assessment there. Um, and you know, six years in is uh, with a Jordanian government saying that you know people can have some employment. Um, it's it's a time that our program could really make a difference. So part of it is, you know, strategically, where do we go? What do we do next? Um, and part of it is, and I think, you know, this is what it feels right for me at my time of my life, after having spent 40 years abroad, to be the person that says to people in the U.S., what you can do is so important and the rest of the world is so important and don't, you know, don't turn inwards, America. That is a mistake. Uh, the, this is truly a global world and the rest of the world really, really matters to us. We matter to them and they matter to us and staying connected internationally and having direct linkages to people so you can understand all those basics of our common humanity and our common interests. Um, that feels like the right thing to do with 40 years of experience overseas. Um, so yes, part of my current job is to remind people uh, here in the United States, what a powerful difference we can make by remaining connected to the rest of the globe and contributing to um, all those change makers who are transforming their families and communities um, and nations internationally. And just a little bit of solidarity um, from us, people knowing that we care, um, given that long shadow I mentioned earlier, how much people look up to the U.S., um, one of the women I met in Rwanda, she said, it just means so much to me that a woman I've never even met cares about me and writes to me. The fact that a woman in America loves me makes me know I, I, I matter. And that's, wow, what a powerful impact to have on a woman in Rwanda from being a sponsor in the U.S., uh, well, Laurie, thank you so much for your time and, and for your, frankly, your inspiration. Thank you so much. It is uh, your work with your podcast and and your helping us synthesize the mass of news, which is uh -huh. so overwhelming, is, is really important. Thank you very, very uh, much. That's, that's very kind. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Take care. Alrighty, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Laurie. That was interesting. I appreciated that conversation. Um, some great ones coming up, so stay tuned. As I mentioned at the beginning, you can see all of the premium episodes that I've already published, plus ones that are in the pipeline. And you can recommend to me what premium episodes to post if you become a premium podcast subscriber. I'm asking for recurring monthly contributions to help keep the lights on, help keep this thing going. I so appreciate your support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just click on the link in the description field of this podcast or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and, and click the link there. All right. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.